0: Here we come to the end of uh, another book of the Bible. Uh, it's exciting um, just the, the longer we've been a church and the longer I've gotten to preach, um, the more books we've been able to start and finish and make our ways through uh, from just reflecting our times in the book of Jonah, Nehemiah, uh, Ecclesiastes, if you've been here this that long, uh, Ephesians, um, Colossians, First Peter now, um, First John, which which we're hoping to do, uh, Lord willing, again in the fall. Uh, and so here we come to the end of First Peter. Um, my hope today is to kind of wrap up 1 Peter and put a, a pretty bow on it and hopefully stir us towards repentance and faith in the process and uh, and help move us forward by God's grace to whatever He has planned next for us. Um, I pray that First Peter has been a blessing to you. I hope that it's challenged your heart, that it's... Uh, led you to repentance and faith and to behold God in a way like you've not done thus far. Um, it has been a dear book to, to my heart. Someone said to me a few weeks ago, you're really enjoying First Peter, aren't you? Uh, I said, yes, I am. I, uh, Yeah, I, the, as you get to spend, I hope you do this at home too, as you spend time beyond just Sunday mornings in a book, and you spend weeks inside of a book, you, you get to know, I think, better the heart of God and His plan for His people and His desires. Um, so, anyways, I pray that's been the case for you. Uh, so as we work through this last few verses of First Peter, I'm going to take the opportunity for a couple reasons. One, because it's the end of the book. And two, because I think it's actually what Peter does to actually kind of summarize the entire book. Uh, the, the book, kind of the heartbeat of the book, is this idea of suffering for the sake of Christ. So first of all, like living faithfully, because that's what Christ has called us to do. And that's what the Spirit of Christ does in us. It brings about faithful living, but particularly faithful living that then spurs or gives occasion for suffering. Suffering is something that is inevitable, suffering is not something that the Christian gets to avoid. It's not something ultimately that anyone gets to avoid or anyone can protect themselves against ultimately. But even for the Christian, I mean, we we live in a culture, there's two big uh, ideas, both in the church and outside the church. Outside the church, there's this idea in America where we are going to spend money, do whatever we can to avoid suffering, and we should be able to accomplish that. I mean, that's really the idea. We should be able to accomplish a life without suffering. That should be the case. But then even in the church, there's this sense in which that has permeated the church, and we say, well, if you're a Christian, and we try to spiritualize it, well, well, Jesus died to save you from suffering. Um, But suffering is inevitable, and we've seen that in 1 Peter. Peter says that this is not an exception suffering is the norm it's not something that you and i can escape from even with no amount of planning can help us avoid suffering now i want to give a couple caveats that I've given over the course of this series, just to help us, whenever we think about what we believe, we also have to think about what we deny, what we affirm, what we deny, and so I'm always trying to say what we, what I'm trying to say, but also say what I'm not trying to say, so that we have a, some clarity here. We have to be careful when we think about suffering, that we're, that we what we do not count suffering because of sin or foolishness as suffering for the sake of Christ. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about here. It's not suffering that's a result of foolishness or sinfulness. For example, maybe you've sinned, but you can't see it. Someone confronts you. Now you feel attacked or like you're suffering. All right? I've even seen people under church discipline where there is a multitude of witnesses of their sin, claim that they are suffering at the hands of the church. That's not the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about here. Where sin is clear, where sin is taking place. But now, listen, because anytime your flesh is attacked, it's going to feel like suffering. So we have to be careful that we don't confuse the two things together. Or another example of this would be you've messed up in your marriage and now your spouse doesn't trust you and so you feel like you're suffering in a rough marriage. Yes, there is certainly suffering. I'm not denying the reality of suffering. but That's not the suffering that Peter's talking about if you're the transgressor in that situation. If you're the spouse that's not being the transgressor but the one who's been transgressed against and you're living faithfully, then that's probably the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about. The second caveat that I wanted to give is that many of us honestly don't know this kind of suffering, or at least don't know this kind of suffering to any significant extent because we spend too much of our time swimming with the rest of the world. Instead of swimming upstream, like faithfulness to Christ would lead us to do, we tend to look and think and act just like the rest of the world. And when we do that, there will not be a measure of suffering. There will be the the first kind of suffering I'm talking about, where because of our sin, that kind of suffering is going to happen. But, But the kind of suffering that comes from faithfulness to Christ might be far and few between as our lives look just like the world around us. Now, again, we, a lot of us grew up in church cultures where, you know, as long as we didn't drink alcohol, get tattoos and say cuss words and watch R-rated films, you know, and we burned our CDs that were, you know, rock and roll, uh, then we, we were good. You're not swimming like the rest of the world. You're going upstream. What, we, what happened, though, in that culture is we forgot about Jesus saying, you know, I tell you, The Bible says, it's been said, don't murder your brother, but I tell you, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you've murdered him. Jesus is saying that there's something deeper than just these physical actions that is actually, ultimately, important. Jesus says what's going on in the heart is important. So that's where I think the struggle is, where we have to really get after this, is that when we try to find pleasure in all the wrong things, we're acting like the rest of the world. And that's a struggle that all of us face every day, multiple times a day. Some examples might be finding pleasure, our ultimate satisfaction in maybe our kids acting a certain way. Or things like sex, money, retirement, planning for the future. These are all things that are not necessarily bad, but when they become ultimate things, our lives begin to look just like the rest of the world, even though we may not have the bowl as dirty on the outside as others. But a Christian's life looks radically different because their supreme love is radically different. So There's a couple caveats there. The, the next thing I, I would just warn us against is that we could also have insulated ourselves from suffering so much that we know very little of what this kind of life looks like. It's easy to build our lives around what makes us most comfortable instead of following Christ and letting come what He has providentially planned to come. It's really easy to orchestrate life around what brings us the least measure of suffering. But this suffering the suffering that Peter's talking about for the sake of Christ, that this whole book has been about, this kind of suffering is inevitable. It's not something you and I can insulate ourselves from ultimately. If we're going to follow Christ, then this is the kind of suffering this suffering will happen. When we choose the path to follow Christ by His grace and the working of His Spirit inside of us, certainly, it will at some point rub the world wrongly. When Christ becomes your greatest treasure, what it does is it exposes the treasure of those around you. Right, But when your treasure looks just like theirs, then everybody just blends in. But when when you treasure something beyond this world, when you treasure Christ, then it exposes, it applies heat, if you will, to the treasuring of those around you. Listen, when, when you call people to grace and holiness and salvation in Christ, you will be persecuted and there will be suffering. Maybe not in every situation, but it will come. Or when your child misses a game because church is something you treasure more than the other people, you will be persecuted. You will suffer and even your child will. Or maybe at work when you won't go the extra fourth or fifth mile at work because you'll have to sacrifice your family and the things, other things that are important to your faithfulness to Christ. You will be persecuted. You will be overlooked for that position that maybe you are most qualified for. Or when you tell your lost friends, or maybe even your friends who go to another community of Christ that your church family is important to you. You might be persecuted, you might just suffer. And listen, as the world continues, we see this around us as the world continues to reward the wicked, it will rain hatred upon the righteous in increasing measure. That that's just it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Listen, there is nothing in this world that operates as it was supposed to. Nothing. Nothing except for Christ, the Spirit, the Father, and His plan. Nothing else operates the way it was supposed to. Nothing is untouched by brokenness. Nothing. Even God's perfection interacts with brokenness. And nothing is untouched. Your heart has been touched by brokenness within and without. The church has not been untouched by brokenness. The government has been touched by brokenness. Your parenting, your emotions, your actions, your pastors, other churches, Your neighborhood, everything has been touched by brokenness. And everything will have a negative impact on you at some point. said, even your elders are going to say things that are riddled with brokenness, are going to act or use a tone that is riddled with brokenness, are going to make decisions that are riddled with brokenness. But think, jump back up a layer with me to think that the world is not untouched by brokenness. There's nothing that is untouched by brokenness. Like even Jesus, right, even Jesus Christ himself from without was touched by brokenness, right? I mean, no measure of that was from within, but he still experienced brokenness. So here's the question. Why do we expect life around us to be perfect or ideal? Like, why do we expect anything to be perfect or ideal? The the other night, or what, last night? Yeah, last night came home, and my ideal situation was not happening. And I transgressed against my wife in the process. I was impatient and unkind with my words, and I had to ask her for forgiveness. I came home expecting an ideal situation. Listen, life is it's not, its not the way the world is. It's never going to meet your preferences. And if it does, it will only for a short time. Because, trust me, your preferences will shift. Or the brokenness of that situation could increase. Or things will change. Listen, we have bought into the lie that life can be exactly the way we want it that it can be unbroken, and that it can match our dreams. What is that? What is that? Because, because listen, they're, they're fighting against that kind of culture as well. What is it? It's the denial of the fall. And it's a lie of Satan. That life could be perfect and it could match your dreams. In the midst of this scenario, in the midst of this kind of struggle, Peter, as these people are trying to walk faithfully to the Lord over all these chapters, as he is exhorting them to walk faithfully, and they're they're facing great persecution, even threatening of their lives and, and removal from social positions and jobs and things like that. What Peter does, and we saw this at the very, very beginning, what Peter does is he gives them marching orders. We would expect that in the midst of someone's suffering, that we would give them some sort of soft love notes that are encouraging them to continue walking, right? And certainly there is encouraging words in here from Peter. But Peter understands that one of the worst things that you and I could do in the midst of our struggles is meditate on our struggles. In the midst of suffering, one of the worst things we can do is meditate on our suffering. Certainly, we need to think through the suffering. We need to think critically and and, and biblically through the suffering. But we don't set our eyes on the suffering and let our heart linger on the suffering. There is something else that's greater than the suffering that we are called to do. And Peter, being a good pastor, knows this. I like what Paul Tripp said at this point on this passage. He said, listen, you and I don't need to go to school to learn how to play the victim. Look, Look, we don't need help learning how to be the victim and how to play that card in whatever situation you and I find ourselves in. In that relationship that's difficult, you don't need anyone to teach you how to play the victim. In that moment with your child who's not behaving, you don't need anyone to help you learn how to play the victim. Or driving down the road, right? You don't need anyone to teach you how to play the victim. And Peter wants to move our eyes. This whole book is about moving our eyes above the situation, beyond the pain, beyond the trial, beyond the confusion, and let our soul ultimately be captivated by the glory of who God is and what God is doing. Get your eyes off of it. Look up. But Peter exhorts them to get their eyes off of it and to begin looking at what God, who God is and what He's doing and what He's called you to wants to move our eyes away from this. And that's what this book has been about. And Peter wants to move our eyes. He wants to move our eyes. I think, by and large, across this book, there's been three beautiful pictures that Peter paints for us in this letter. Three pictures, three paintings that are meant to captivate your mind and spur your affections. You know, it it was encouraging as I was thinking through these three things in this book. It was encouraging to think that I believe, and and I think our elders would agree, and I think many of you as well, that these three pictures are much of what sets us apart as a church. Not apart from everyone. There are many churches, and there are a handful of them in this city that would be set apart by these same things. But these three things I think are true. True of our church, at least we strive for. The three things are this. We are captured by God's grace. That's a very loaded statement, certainly. But we are captured by God's grace. We are encouraged by God's community. And we are at peace with God by God's gospel. That we are captured by God's grace. We are encouraged by God's community. And we are at peace with God by God's gospel. Those are not in any particular order, just simply the order that they appear here in this last passage in 1 Peter. These are three convictions that drive everything we do as a church. It infiltrates the preaching, it impacts our counseling, it determines our informal conversations, it pushes the elders in their wisdom and decision making and so on and so forth. We are captured by God's grace, we are encouraged by God's community and at peace with God because of His gospel. Those are the three themes, the three points we'll work through, beginning with the first one here. First Peter five, twelve through thirteen. Basilvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. So the first thought here, we are captured by God's grace. Captured by God's grace. Let's talk about some names here first. Who, who are these people? Silvanus, most scholars believe this is likely Silas. Paul's companion, Silas. This is the Latinized version of his name. So who is Silas? Silas was among the trusted leaders of the early church in Jerusalem and held Roman citizenship. Silas, this companion of the apostles, was among the well-known core leadership of the first century church from its earliest days and through Paul's missionary journeys and later with Peter and Mark and Rome. It's a faithful brother. it has been someone that they would have likely known that's why he mentions his name. Right, so who's this Mark guy? This is a protege of Peter, someone he discipled, someone he was close enough with to call his son. Now what about this she who is at Babylon? She who is at Babylon. What in the world, Peter, are you talking about? I, I think it's things clear most scholars believe that He's referring to, it's like a symbol. He's referring to the the church in Rome. The idea of this, like the capital of the place of exile away from the true inheritance in heaven. So the church that is in exile in Rome. So she, the church, who is in Babylon. That fits, if you look earlier on in Peter, this idea of them being exiles in this place for a time and suffering in this place that's not heaven. That's not what we long for. That's not what we've been saved to. She at Babylon, who's likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So he's referring to the church in Rome. They send you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So, this idea of we are captured by God, he he says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So what I have just written you, all that I have said, is the true grace of God. Let's think about this idea of grace for a moment reality is is we have been perpetrators of self-righteous legalism and captivated by it captivated by the idea that you and i could make ourselves right with god that we could prove ourselves each and every day you and i live under this unrelenting gravitational pull to prove ourselves righteous It could be to ourselves, it could be to other people, it could be to our boss, it could be to our kids. We want to prove ourselves self-dependent, self-sovereign, self-glorifying. We want to be these things on our own. That's from the fall, right? The, The desire to discern for themselves what is good and evil is this desire to prove that they alone can act as God. So examples, when you struggle to confess your sin, it's because of legalism, right? Because if I confess my sin, then I confess the reality that I am not worthy of glory myself. Or when I fail to study the Word, it's legalism. Why? Because I think I can prove myself apart from the Word. Now, it could be for legalism that you do read the Word, but it could be either. Or when you hold on to bitterness against someone else, It's legalism. When you hold up on biblical standards for someone else to obtain in order to relate to you, it's legalism. All headed toward destruction, and all of us have loved the darkness. And it's a weight, a crushing weight upon you and upon those around you. I've found myself a few times in conversation over the past couple months with the idea of how do you fight legalism? you fight it with grace. That seems counterintuitive, right? You got to crush the legalism, right? Now you let grace expose the legalism for what it is. Legalism never saved anybody. The law cannot save. Grace is what saves. And Peter is saying that you are now the recipients of God's grace. That's what he just said. I've written this to you your letter, and I want you to know it is the true grace of God, and by implication, it's yours. I've given it. It's yours. God has bestowed it upon you. You don't got to be legalistic anymore. You don't got to prove yourself anymore. the, The grace proves you already a fool. And incapable of saving yourself. Grace is first an indictment and then a delight. You're now the recipients of God's grace, God has now done a work in you. You now have a reason to get up in the morning. A reason for hope in the darkest of times. You have a reason to study a word. You have a reason to lay your life down for that other person. You have a reason to be open about your struggles. You have a reason to walk next door to that broken neighbor. You are now the recipients of the true grace of God. Peter is saying you can suffer and suffer well because you have the true grace of God. You see, grace changes us. I want to read to you this quote from John Piper. It says this, Then something miraculous happened. It was like the opening of the eyes of the blind during the golden dawn. First, the stunned silence before the unspeakable beauty of holiness. Then a shock and terror that we had actually loved the darkness. Then the settling stillness of joy that this is the soul's end. The quest is over. We would give anything if we might be granted to live in the presence of this glory forever and ever. This is what grace has done to God's people. By His grace, creates a longing that we could just simply be in His presence forever. It opens our eyes to see the glory of God around us even amidst the brokenness. Listen, there is grace for everything you have been called to do. Everything. No matter how big or how small. Trip gave this example. So when I'm walking, it spoke right to my heart, maybe it will yours. So when I'm walking down the hallway to deal with that child at nighttime for the tenth time, there is grace for that situation when I'm going to work, and I know I'm not received well for my faith, there is grace for that situation. When I face that temptation once again, there is grace for that situation. I know I don't have the wisdom. I know I don't have the strength on my own, but the grace of God is with me. Did you hear those words? Because those are crucial. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have the strength on my own to do, but I have the grace of God and it is with me. There is grace for your marriage. There is grace for late nights on the edge of your bed when you feel all alone. There is grace for those later years in life when the body grows weak and you don't look forward to the next day. There is grace when it comes to trusting your leaders. There is grace to become united with another body of Christ. There is grace to worship in a new space. There is grace. There is grace. There is grace. I wrote in my notes, look to the person next to you and say, there is grace. Do it. There we go. Now we feel a little charismatic for a moment. Now we can go back to being Baptist. I know. Is that a little rough? Is that a little rough? Some of you are like, oh, but... That was right. Don was back in the bag. There's grace, brother. There's grace. I want to remind you, grace doesn't always look the way we think it should look, Right? Grace is not just letting something slide by. Grace is not lessening the demands of God's holiness. That's just an exchange of one legalism for another. Peter has shown us the myriad of ways in which grace looks throughout this book. Grace, sometimes grace is hard-hitting and smacks us upside the head. Sometimes grace is giving you what you want so that you would discover its frivolity and its destruction. Sometimes grace is a new identity a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Sometimes it's the grace of godly leaders and particularly elders, as we just heard a few weeks ago. Sometimes it's the grace of community and knowing that we're not suffering alone. Do you understand that because of grace, you are never, ever, ever, ever in a situation without your Lord? Ever. Ever. It doesn't matter, the situation. If you are struggling with fear and anxiety, ask God for a better grasp on His grace. You are never, ever without His sure, steady, all-wise, and loving Grace ever. First Peter 5 14, the first part. He says, Greet one another with the kiss of love, right? So there we have it, our new command as a church. You walk in the door, it's a kiss of love. Right there. Now listen, I think some of you germaphobes would probably walk away from Jesus at this point. Like, there ain't no way. Nope, nope, nope. Nope, nope, nope. Man, I make my husband put sanitizer on his lips. Here's Peter's point. The community of God is necessary in the life of a believer. The intimate love-filled, driven, gospel-centered community of God is necessary for a believer. Uh, if you, where do you get that from this? I think he's alluding to what he said. This is just the outworking of what he has said thus far in First Peter. You can go back and look at all the times he references the life of community of a believer and leaders in the community of a believer and not suffering alone and so on and so forth. So listen, we are encouraged by God's community. We are captivated by His grace. We are encouraged by God's community. <clears throat> listen, it's simply not possible for us to make it on our own. The world is a harsh place. Opposition is hard. Rejection is difficult. And if you're going to swim upstream for any length of time against the current, you cannot do it without the encouragement of God's community. Listen, the, the, the proclivity of your heart is to swim with everybody else. It'd just be easier that way. Peter understands this. He knows in, in, in our hard how hard it is even in our individualistic culture and our fleshly drive to prove ourselves he understands, but if you're going to truly live for Christ, then you will need God's community. You will need His people. You will need His body. Now, now a couple of things here. Like some of you, let me speak to you for a moment. Some of you don't feel worthy of God's community. Some of you, like Peter, say, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. I've got to clean myself up. Maybe you feel ashamed because of whatever has happened in your life or you've done yourself. Or maybe ashamed because we can't overcome this or that and we struggle. But listen, 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 listen to me. There is grace in the community of God, there is grace for you to have in the community of God for those very struggles. Jesus took your shame. He took it. It's gone. He paid the price for the guilt underneath that shame. Listen, if you don't, listen, if you don't feel worthy of community, you will never get it. Why? Because the reality is, is you aren't worthy of it. You'll never be worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. It's grace. <clears throat> but also because the moment you think you're worthy of it, prideful people don't experience God's community. They experience a bunch of people orbiting around them, and that's not community. I also want to encourage you. It's, uh, well, I, actually, before I move on, First Peter 2, verse 9, he says to you, you are a royal priesthood a holy nation next it's it's not though simply enough to come or even serve right it's the picture here is one of intimate community, a place of warm fellowship, a community where people know you and you are known, a place where people are regularly speaking the truth of the gospel into your life, and a place where you are regularly speaking the truth of the gospel into other people's lives. Peter calls us in chapter 2 again, this royal priesthood section, he calls us a people, you're a people, a collection of people of people, a community that God has put aside for, or brought to himself, and set aside for himself. Listen, needy and broken people gather here every Sunday. We are all beaten up by the struggles and the brokenness of this world. There is an opportunity to love others every day of the week. What are you, what am I so preoccupied with that we can't give a holy kiss to someone else? Too afraid of getting sick? Too afraid of this getting in the way of your plans? too afraid it might be uncomfortable. Listen, again, I, I, don't, I don't think he means literally. I think he does. You can. You can. Come give me a kiss. That's fine. Just do it on my cheek, not on the lips. That would be awkward. But this, like, why, why are we so formal even was a question I heard this week on this passage. Listen, love is a commitment. Always looking for opportunities to express it, to give it, to show it. Always. Listen, you should never walk out of this gathering or any other gathering of this church feeling unloved. If you do, we need to work harder. On the other hand, you should never walk out of this gathering or any other gathering we have without making others feel loved. Greet one another. Spur this kind of culture on. We need to have a sensitivity and a love for one another as we struggle through the hardships of life. Then the rest of verse 14, Peter says this, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Christ. This third beautiful picture. Listen, we were created to live at peace with God. Adam and Eve were created to this. We were to live then as their offspring at peace with God. Each of us in this deep, this deep, loving, unhindered, no tension whatsoever. This blissful, peaceful relationship with our Creator, where He would walk in the cool of the day with us and commune unhindered, with community unhindered. We're created for this. In each of us is this deep, intrinsic longing to be in relationship with our Creator. I think we see glimpses of this reality when you think about the fact that we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, unwilling to settle for ordinary or Now, obviously, that can become an idolatry if it's sought in the wrong place, but at its core, God has created us with this good desire for something bigger than us, to to be at peace with our Creator. It's something He has stamped on the very core of our souls. We're created to live at peace with each other, with with creation and, and with God's image bearers, to live without tension, to live without brokenness, to live in communion with Him, each other, and beyond we know this longing so well. That's why we run from tension. That's why we don't want to have the hard conversations. That's why we, we just want to pretend like everything's okay. And, because we want to be at peace. And we, so we grasp for whatever inkling of peace we can find. Listen, the final beautiful picture in First Peter is this. that is that the people who may not know peace through their circumstances can know the peace of God through Christ Those who may not be able to see or feel the release in this world which by the way is none of us can know that they are at peace with God because of Christ We are at peace with God because of His gospel. Now now my operating assumption here is that we have accepted Christ. That Christ has come. That God has given us new birth. So this is not everyone. I don't mean we as in all of the world is at peace with God. Listen to what Peter says. Peace to all of you who are what? In Christ Christ. He doesn't say peace to all of you and all of your friends and all of your neighbors and so on. He's a peace to those who are in Christ. There's an exclusivity to it. We are at peace with God because of his gospel. That's what I mean by his gospel, this being in Christ. Listen, life is the hardest when you and I are at odds with God. It doesn't matter what measure of suffering you are going through, nothing is as bad or nothing makes life as difficult as being at war with the God who has created you. Oh. Listen, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were enemies of God, right? Following the course of this world, enemies with God. That's the worst place to be. Even though you are suffering and things happening that you don't understand, confusion about what you may face next... Here's the question, are you at peace with God? Someone else asked it like this one. I think this is helpful when we think about peace, is, is your heart at rest? Are you at rest? So peace and rest are these things that, that go very closely together. It's a good test question for knowing if you or for discerning if do I know the peace that Peter's talking about here is, is does my heart rest? not at rest? because you are strong, not at rest because you are wise, or not at rest because you've been able to cobble together enough control that you think you can handle it. That's not the rest I'm talking about, but rest in the presence and the power of the person of grace, Jesus Christ. Do I have rest because I know He died to bring me peace? Starting at the beginning of this book, he talks about a rest in God's sovereign, sanctifying grace. He goes on to talk about how it won't quit doing its work. God will finish this sanctifying work by His grace. He will ultimately deliver you and me from every ounce of brokenness even the little drops of brokenness that, are, that come from within. Every sin that you and I struggle with, He will deliver us from it. We can rest as the, as the people of God, that we are His treasured possession, a possession of the King and the Lord of Lords. We can rest in God's wisdom as the way of life. Knowing that wisdom is a person. Listen, he knows how fickle and self oriented we can be. We can rest in his authority and his exercise of it in our lives. Listen, this, this idea of this peace with God and his grace. God's promise is this, I will not lose you to the difficulties of life, to Satan, a broken world, a broken church, a broken government. I will not lose you to the difficulties of this life. You are at peace with God, those who are in Christ. God says, you are mine. Listen, when life gets hard, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of when life gets hard? You have nothing to be afraid of. You are His and nothing can change that for all of eternity. See, he say? stand firm in this grace. And you have this grace because Jesus has made peace you and God by His death. And listen, you and I can be at peace with God when He works in us this reality that Christ becomes our greatest treasure. We are His once we are in Christ. He dies for us He died for us. The greatest suffering was experienced by Christ. And the greatest suffering of Christ was not the rejection of His friends, was not the cat of nine tails, was not the nails in His hands or the thorns in His brow. The greatest suffering Christ experienced was the wrath and rejection of His Father that was not due to Him, but was due to you and due to me. He underwent the greatest suffering of all time so that you and I would never experience the greatest suffering of all time. He experienced the greatest rejection of all time so that you and I could be received in God's house as righteous. Jesus experienced broken community with God so that we could be welcomed into the community of God. And he took the pain and outcome of war with God so that all you and I would ever know is peace. When God gives us a new heart to behold this glory, and then by faith we believe God places us inside Christ. He makes us one with Christ. He unites us inseparably with Christ. We are remade in Him, and when He does that, we no longer have to look for peace in this world. We no longer have to have community with this world. We no longer have to earn or prove ourselves righteous, for we have been made righteous in Christ, and we have hope for tomorrow because we have peace with God today. For those who have peace with God through Christ, suffering in this world is only but a moment and a temporary one at most. For time is marching toward a day when suffering for God's redeemed shall be no more. To ever cross our path again. What a miracle. Let me close with this quote from Calvin. It is surely plain how necessary it is for us to bear the cross, meaning suffer. It is of no little importance to be rid of your self love and made fully conscious of your weakness so impressed with the sense of your weakness as to learn to distrust yourself, to distrust yourself so as to transfer your confidence to God, reclining on Him with such heartfelt confidence as to trust in His aid and to continue invincibly to the end, standing by His grace so as to perceive that He is true to His promises, and so assured of the certainty of his promises as to be strong in hope. We have hope for tomorrow because we have peace for today, for those who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous book written by Your servant Peter. Father, I pray that it would permeate our unbelieving hearts, that it would spur right belief, and that right belief would spur appropriate affections, that we would be Your people who worship You in spirit and in truth, we would love you more than anything else on this earth. For then, and rightly then, we can steward both the things you have given and the things you've called us to. For then, even in the midst of suffering, what can be more precious to us would be Jesus, and not just the way out of suffering. We love you. It's in Jesus' name.